Hello and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about Netflix versus Wall Street, Spotify versus Neil Young, and who Joe Biden will nominate to the Supreme Court. Yes, Matt went to law school. After that, we'll be joined by Julia Yaffe to discuss the grim potential of a Russian invasion of Ukraine and what the Biden administration is doing about it. And finally, Dylan Byers will swing by to tell us about tough times at CBS News, which is trying to replace its current evening news anchor with, wait, that can't be right, Brian Williams? These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. Joining me now in the powers that be is our man in Hollywood, Matt Bellany. Matt, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer announced he was retiring this week. Are you wearing your notorious SGB shirt around uh, central LA right now? I don't have that. I may have had some Breyer's ice cream today, though. <laughs> uh, happy about that one. Um, no, it's a big deal. I mean, this is what people were hoping would happen before the midterms. And he got in line and said, okay, I'll retire. The question I have is, who is it going to be? Who's who's your stealth pick? I don't have a stealth pick. I'm not an expert in this stuff. I mean, I I can say with reasonable confidence that the, the Twitter buzz uh, about Kamala Harris being nominated to the Supreme Court is pretty fucking stupid. Um, you know, she's that, not. That is about as real as Oprah or Steve Harvey <laughs> getting the spot. I mean, Biden has said he wants a black woman. He did not say he wants his own VP. Yeah, I mean, like Kamala is is not very popular, obviously, and there's a lot of drama in her office. But it's just it's just symptomatic of Twitter brain poison. If you think Kamala is, you know, this is part of some three dimensional chess move to save his reelection bid, put Kamala on the court. I mean, she's a prosecutor, not a jurist, not a legal mind you know, on the, on the par of a Supreme court nominee. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know anything, anything special here. This is not my beat. You know, it sounds like the two front runners and and Biden has said he's going to appoint a black woman. He made that promise during the campaign are, uh, circuit court of appeals judge in DC, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. She seems like the front runner. She was just confirmed to the court by the Senate. So that would make for an easier road. California Supreme court justice, Leandra Kruger, but you know, there are some other names out there, but uh, Jackson seems like the front runner. Jackson and Kruger are interesting because they are younger. I mean, Jackson is 51 and Kruger is only 45. And if the goal is to get a staunch liberal on the bench for decades to come uh, in the you know mold of an Amy Coney Barrett, who was, I believe, in her late 40s. She's 49. That, yeah. Yeah, that is uh, that is a pretty good uh, appealing age right there. Yeah, totally. And it, it would mean that the three liberal justices in the court are all women. I mean, this is an opportunity for Biden to follow through on his campaign promises. He he made this promise in a debate during the primaries. It's an opportunity to change the subject for him from a sort of dismal story around the economy and COVID and his sinking poll numbers. And it's an opportunity to talk to his base and say, hey, like this is something tangible that I am am doing for you. And I'm not predicting that these confirmation hearings, when they happen, are going to be full of the kind of fireworks that the 
the Kavanaugh hearings had, um, which were obviously a huge deal. But this happened right before the midterms in 2018 and had the effect of firing up both bases, <laughs> in fact. And, you know, Biden, the White House hasn't done a wonderful job of explaining his accomplishments. Some of them are very big. Um, a Supreme Court nomination is pretty easy to explain. You can just point to this person and say, I did that. I made history. I did this for you. And it's a it's a it's a big deal for Biden, a big opportunity. Now they just need Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch to keel over and uh, they'd, have, <laughs> they'd have even more opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Not that I'm wishing death upon anyone. Never. All right, Matt, I want to move a little bit closer to your area of expertise. <laughs> no offense. No problem. I did very well in constitutional law in law school. So, yes. uh, so I, I take offense to that. People listening to this, the first time I met Matt, I didn't know this about him. Uh, we met up at the Brig, which is my local bar in Venice. And Matt, before he was an esteemed journalist, was went to law school and was a lawyer. And I actually, I, I respect people who migrated from other careers into journalism a hell of a lot. One, because you take a pay cut. Two, you take a risk. But three, you also bring like a a, a different point of view and, and different experience to the world of journalism. And sometimes journalists just graduate college and are journalists forever. So you had some other expertise coming into this, uh, which I appreciate. Anyway. <clears throat> depends on the day. Depends on the day. Today is one day where you have some mild knowledge. Uh, I want to talk to you about Netflix's earnings call. Uh, last week. Netflix, obviously a huge media behemoth, was before this earnings call valued trading around $700 a share. As we're taping this, they're around $359 a share. That's <laughs> a shitload of shareholder that value that has disappeared. This is expertise right here. That is bad. That is bad. Now, okay, so, and you wrote about this week for, you wrote about Netflix this week for, for Puck.News and what all of this means. The market is down across the board, really. I mean, a ton of companies in, in recent months over the last month specifically have lost a ton of value. But what specifically is going on with Netflix? Is this a symptom of the market being down or is there something unique to what they said on their earnings call that is that is driving the price down? So first, the good news. Netflix is not Peloton. That, <laughs> that is the good news. Uh, there, the, Nobody... no. Nobody's saying that they need to be sold to Apple immediately or they're going to go under. Um, no, but this was not good. I mean, Netflix has been overvalued for years. Many people have said because they have kind of ridden this tech wave. They are essentially an entertainment company that has used technology to become the first truly global streaming service. And that was valued by the market as being a tech company. Turns out Netflix is largely an entertainment company. And what triggered the sell-off this last week was they projected some numbers out for the next quarter that are not as robust as they have been growing in the past. They projected they would add about 2.5 million subscribers. For a company with 222 million subscribers worldwide, that doesn't seem like very much. And it's significantly lower than the growth metrics that they have had over the past few years. So especially during the pandemic, when everybody was home and subscribing to streaming services. So investors immediately took stock of that. They not only pummeled Netflix, but they've kind of pummeled the entire streaming video ecosystem. Companies like Disney and Viacom CBS and Discovery, Roku, these companies are all down because the thinking now is that uh, maybe the streaming video world is not going to grow 
at the same rate that people thought it would grow. So, I, I mean, I my other job is I work at Snapchat and, and Snap is a company that often gets compared to quote unquote rivals like Facebook and TikTok and Google and all of those companies are big tech platforms, but they all have very different fundamental use cases, you know, like people watch videos on TikTok and share them with friends, people on Snapchat watch more produced content and chat with friends, and then people use Google to search for various things and they make their money off of AdWord revenue. Anyway, I get a little aggravated when people just blanketly compare Snapchat to X tech company. So is that fair on investors part to compare Netflix to Disney and Hulu uh, and all of these other streaming platforms? I guess they're more, they offer more of a similar experience than these other big tech companies. Well, what what's interesting is that Netflix has one product. Uh, it often gets compared by the market to places like Disney because they're both gigantic media companies. But Disney is a 100-year-old, fully integrated, total flywheel operating at all times, theme parks, movies, you know. Netflix does one thing, and they've done it better than anyone else, and they were the first mover in this market to really achieve scale. And that's benefited them. But, you know, maybe this is my personal opinion. Maybe Netflix shouldn't have been valued higher than the Walt Disney Company, given that Disney has proven itself a robust brand for 100 years. And Netflix has really only been doing streaming for a decade. You know, it was just that Netflix caught the tech wave. And as much as it might annoy you that to be lumped into, uh, you know, other companies when you're a company like Snap, I'm sure there have been benefits as well over the past, especially over the past five to seven years when it comes to the growth metrics that people see on these platforms. So is is Reed Hastings going to make any kind of pivot here and respond to the slow user growth? Are they going to drop seasons four, five and six of Too Hot to Handle immediately? Like are, are... That would do it. That would do it immediately. That would that would solve all the problems. Uh, you know, Tiger King 3, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, it's interesting to hear Netflix talk about this because publicly, at least, they're like, oh, we're not concerned. Business as usual. And I actually agree with them to an extent that fundamentally the business of Netflix is not in trouble. Streaming is a very difficult business. You have to spend a lot to get a lot of customers. And it's very, very uh, susceptible to things like churn, where people unsubscribe when they're not watching something and then come back. Very different from the cable business, which made it very difficult to unsubscribe. That said, Netflix has the kind of scale now, you know, 222 million worldwide, where I'm not worried they're going to go out of business. They are going to be in that conversation of the two, three, maybe four streaming platforms that survive this wave of consolidation right now unless something drastic happens. They also have a number of levers they could pull. Netflix doesn't offer advertising and they could do an ad supported tier if they wanted to. They could put an ad on that homepage and it would generate a lot of money. They could do news and sports and other things that they have so far avoided doing. But I don't think that Netflix is, is fundamentally a troubled company. It's the market that was trouble. The market had a problem because it had overvalued Netflix because of the category it was in. And I think that coming down is probably the right thing. The only other bad thing is obviously if you work at Netflix or if you've been a shareholder, 
past few years, you are now uh, at a significant disadvantage uh, with your options. Yeah, I hope you exercised your stock options over the summer or during the Trump years. <laughs> or during the pandemic. I mean, yeah. the, the rise of Netflix during the pandemic was crazy. So, if people, you know, it was up to 700 bucks at one point. Yeah, that is crazy. I want to ask you about another platform, not not video, but audio, which is Spotify. Do you use Spotify or are you a Pandora guy? I, I actually have an Apple Music. Guy. Whoa. Yeah. What is that? Is that just based on like early user behavior? You just stuck with it? Yeah, I just like it popped up on my phone and I already got other stuff there and I just use it. I should switch over to Spotify. Everyone says it's better. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I do think one of the great missed opportunities in modern tech and media is is Apple Music. I mean, obviously they have huge scale, but everyone in the mid to late 2000s had iTunes for their iPod. And, you know, when streaming started to happen, they just made it incredibly difficult to, to migrate into that world. Um, and so I, I jumped on the Spotify bandwagon. I probably should have, but I was late to the iPhone party and just kind of got it when I, you know, to keep the Apple ecosystem going. But yeah, everyone says Spotify is better. So yeah, I mean, the, one of the biggest, one of the most interesting things about about Spotify right now is that plenty of people got into it to stream music uh, over the last decade, probably. Their algorithm is incredible. Their playlists and radio stations and Discover Weekly, they really know what kind of music you want. Um, sometimes they give it to you a little too much, but They've also been getting into podcasting in recent years and spending lots of money on big names like Joe Rogan to come over and uh, do their podcasts and stream it exclusively on Spotify. And up to now, it hasn't been that much of a problem. But this week, Neil Young uh, threw a fit and said that he wants his stuff removed from Spotify Unless they deplatform Joe Rogan, who, in Neil Young's telling, is spreading disinformation about COVID and vaccines. And I'm curious if you think this could mushroom into a larger problem for Spotify if a bunch of artists start to protest what else is on the platform. And we got a little whiff of this, I guess, in another way with Netflix a few weeks ago and, and the Dave Chappelle controversy there, you know, and Netflix stood pretty firmly with Dave Chappelle against criticism. They didn't want to interfere with creativity and successful artists and, and frankly, people who make a lot of money for the platform. What what do you think? Who's going to win here, Joe Rogan or Neil Young? <laughs> I think if it stays as it is, Joe Rogan probably. Well, first of all, Spotify wins regardless here. Um, but I do think, it, you know, the, the Joe Rogan question has is not new. I mean, there's been a lot of noise ever since he came over there about some of this, the content and specifically the vaccine misinformation that he's been putting out there and having skeptics on and saying, you know, uh, things about, uh, you know, that there's a, I don't even want to repeat it. It's a lot of misinformation. But one artist is not a big deal. Spotify doesn't care about Neil Young. They do care if Neil Young sparks 50 other artists that they care more about, like Taylor Swift or Drake or other artists that are much more, much more highly consumed on Spotify. And if it becomes this make or break moment where they have to choose. Right now, they don't really have to choose. Neil Young can be off the platform fine. But if they have to choose between 
50, 100 artists and Joe Rogan, that becomes a much tougher calculus. Um, and I don't know what they do in that situation because the artist community can galvanize pretty quickly. Now, I don't think they will in particular in this case because of how powerful Spotify is. I mean, it generates so much listenership that there's really only three major players now. It's Spotify, Apple, and Pandora to a smaller extent. I mean, I guess Sirius and there's some others, but you can't really anger Spotify. They have so much power. Totally. And and I presented that choice to you because that's what Neil Young said in, in this letter he posted to Spotify. He said they can have Rogan or Young, not both. So if you're if you're Spotify and you're making that choice, Joe Rogan has, in addition to his larger following on, on YouTube and elsewhere, 11 million listeners per episode on Spotify, according to the Wall Street Journal. Neil Young doesn't have that kind of current dedicated follower base on Spotify. Now, Neil Young has a large fan base, but you know we can assume a lot of those are boomers and Gen Xers who are maybe listening to him in other formats. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think I think you're right. If there were certain artists who are huge on Spotify, like you know Taylor Swift or Nicki Minaj, and they started. Uh, you know, protesting, I think it would be a larger issue. It's more, this is more of a branding issue. This is not a great look for Spotify. They are now in the position of having to defend a guy who is spewing misinformation almost every show. So that's not where they want to be. Um, they obviously like cashing the checks when he sells a lot of advertising for them. And they like that his audience has now migrated over to the Spotify platform. Um, but, you know, it's not a great look. Uh, I want you to guess, this is a game I play with, with my friends sometimes. I want you to guess how many streams Travis Scott's sicko mode has on Spotify. Oh God, this is, I mean, uh, 50 million? No, my friend, 1.585 billion with a B, oh Travis Scott. God, and good. so compare his power <laughs> To Neil Young, who, you know, again, a legendary artist, but is still topping out even on his best songs at like 200 million total streams, uh, you know. And so, in other words, there are far more au courant artists on the platform than Neil Young. But we'll see if, if this goes anywhere. But but here's the thing. Does Travis Scott idolize Neil Young and want to follow in his footsteps here? That's the question. That would be a great story for Rolling Stone if Travis Scott is sitting at home listening to Heart of Gold. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know that he isn't, but you don't know that he isn't. Point. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. about Neil Young per se. It's about what he represents. Yes. And to a certain type of young singer songwriter, it might be meaningful, you know, a Taylor Swift or a, you know, Chris Stapleton, or I don't know who else, but someone like that sees this and it's like, wait, why is my music on Spotify? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. All right, that'll be a really interesting dynamic to follow. And and certainly and just going back to Netflix one more time, like these are the kind of reasons that Netflix is is allergic to putting or so far putting news and, and political content on their platform because they don't want to necessarily deal with these kinds of issues. Well, but then they got smack in the middle of it with Dave Chappelle where they were forced to defend that special, and I think ultimately they made the right choice to 
say, you know what? A lot of comedy is pushing buttons and goes a little far. This was a specific special that was uh, anti-transgender people. And they said, we're not going to censor him. And I think they took a lot of heat for that, especially internally at the company and how it was handled was not great. But ultimately, it set Netflix up to not have to make these quality judgments each time something controversial comes up. They now have a precedent where they say, okay, we're going to defend the artist and then move on. All right, Matt. Thanks so much, man. See you next time. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, and the many layers to Russia's potential invasion of Ukraine. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at www.puck.news. Welcome back to the powers that be. Joining me now is not just Puck's expert on all things Russia, but one of literally our country's greatest journalists on all things Russia. And I say that in all seriousness, Julia Yaffe. Did you see me just roll my eyes and in and, uh, and, and shock and surprise? Well, it's only because there aren't really that many uh, good journalists on Russia anymore, um, in part because some of them have been killed or imprisoned. Because I killed so, them all. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, that's dark, but this segment might be dark. Uh, trigger warning, listeners. So, you know, I was looking at TikTok the other day, as any 40-year-old would, and I saw a teenager... Uh, who was doing a little duet with a video that was going viral on TikTok of Russian soldiers marching through the snow amidst a kind of ominous siren up to the border of Ukraine, I suppose. And he said, I think I'm watching World War III. Is this going to be World War III? What's happening right now in Ukraine and Russia? Look, like no war goes the way it's expected and no war is like the last one. And so... Unfortunately for us, whenever we are staring down the barrel of one, we're grasping for metaphors and uh, analogies to try to make sense of what it is that we feel is kind of coming at us. I don't know that it's going to be World War Three, but it's definitely going to be really, really, really bad if Russia does decide to go all out and launch a full-scale ground and air and sea invasion on Ukraine. And I say that because Ukraine is a different country after both 30 years of independence and in the eight years since Russia invaded the east and annexed Crimea. Uh, it has turned any kind of potential people who used to be kind of more pro-Russian fiercely Ukrainian. And I think it's not going to go without a fight. So like, even if they, let's say Russian tanks roll in and take Kiev in a week, I think there's going to be a really terrible, bloody insurgency that's going to go on for years and years, funded and trained in part by the US, as we know, which is basing their training of the Ukrainians on 
the insurgency they encountered in Iraq. So they're basically teaching the Ukrainians what, you know, Muqtada al-Sadr's armies did in Iraq. And that's, you know, on the eastern, that's in Europe. Uh, You're going to see like, like Iraq or Afghanistan in Europe. And it'll be for, it'll go on for years. It'll be horrible. I want to get into the details of what this might look like if it happens. But you are of the mind that this is a foregone conclusion that military action of some sort is going to happen. I mean, the U.S. has ordered families of, of diplomats out of Kiev. And, and so has Russia, by the way. Yeah. Russia so did it first. It, it, it seems you're, you're saying that that some kind of military action is going to happen. And this isn't just and we talked about this on a previous podcast, like Putin, especially as new presidents come into power, wants to sort of flex his muscles a little bit and remind the world that Russia isn't a rump power that they're still important you know he he likes to flex their muscles in that way but sometimes that means let's go into georgia sometimes it means let's annex crimea sometimes it means let's flood facebook with trash news but it doesn't necessarily mean war but you do think that the violence is on the horizon well it has meant war you know in georgia in ukraine in 2008 and 2014 in moldova uh, it has also meant cyber attacks in the Baltics and in, and in Ukraine. I don't know. Like, we still don't know. But I do think after all this buildup for, what, two months of 100,000 Russian troops, plus now the accumulation of the kind of support services that you need to service the 100,000 troops, medical stuff, energy supplies, all the kind of logistical support that those troops need – surrounding Ukraine on three sides and making these impossible demands, demands that even the Kremlin, uh, like people quietly in Moscow, admit that they know these demands are non-starters and that it's almost like they're a pretext. It's kind of hard to walk away from that and not lose a ton of face. That said, Putin likes to throw curveballs and likes to be unpredictable. So there is, I think, you know, a very small chance that he will say, ha ha, psych, I'm out, because he does like to also look like the adult in the room, especially compared to what he sees as the warmongering U.S., which is, you know, the image that he has of us from the Bush presidency. So I don't know. I think it's really highly likely that there will be some kind of the tanks will, will roll, the proverbial tanks or the literal tanks. But I don't know. Like, And I think, you know, you have the U.S. government, both the White House and the State Department basically running this massive PR campaign this week. And they're saying the only person that can decide this is Vladimir Putin. And they're right. I mean, they're trying to show that, you know, they've done everything can, they can and they're being responsible adults. And it's, you know, it's only this it's up to the crazy guy. But they're right. And okay, so Ukraine is not a formal member of NATO, but they are an ally. And Article 5 of NATO, as we now know, (laughs) after hearing it every day on the news for the last few weeks, says that if a NATO ally is attacked, that all NATO member nations will more or less treat that as an attack on all of them and respond accordingly. Does that mean that U.S. troops will go into Ukraine? Uh, I mean, does it mean that, you know, France and Spain and the Netherlands will send troops into Ukraine? Or is this more like 
you mentioned Afghanistan, where we would take sides and fund an insurgency against Russian incursion or, you know, send them weapons or, you know, enact sanctions. I mean, what what is what is article what is the response to this Article five violation look like in the year 2022? So a, a few things. First of all, uh, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO um, or not and not even really a member in waiting. Yeah. Um, Article 5 doesn't apply. And Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, has made that very clear several times that Ukraine, unfortunately or fortunately, is not entitled to a full military response by NATO. Um, and I do want to add that the only time that Article 5 has been used in the 70 plus years that NATO has existed was after 9-11 when the U.S. was attacked and decided to go into Afghanistan to hunt Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That's how NATO troops got to Afghanistan. So ironically, Putin, I think he's been obsessed with NATO since it was his job to be obsessed with NATO as a KGB officer in East Germany. But you know, in the years since, NATO has really pivoted away from Russia. And until 2014, really all it was doing was Afghanistan. And there were joint military exercises between Russia and NATO. Putin even allowed a NATO base inside Russia on Russian territory in Siberia, uh, kind of north of Afghanistan, to allow NATO troops and material to uh, get to Afghanistan more easily. There were regular talks between Moscow and Brussels, i.e. NATO. So it's ironic that as much as Putin sees NATO as an existential threat, he has made it one by invading Ukraine in 2014, at which point NATO had to kind of, you know, veer off the road it was on and focus on Russia again, which is, I think, kind of what he wants. He wants to be paid attention to. The other thing is, like, Article 5 isn't the only article that matters. And I think the issue here is Article 10 of the NATO Charter. That's what Putin is upset about. And Article 10 essentially says that any country that wants to join NATO can apply, can meet these certain standards, and can be accepted into NATO. And Russia wants basically a veto seat on that board. It's not a board, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which is like, it's a non, it's a non-starter, right? Like, uh, what kind of alliance gives a non-member veto power over its membership? In this case, because Ukraine is not a NATO member, Article Five is not an issue, but it's Article Ten that is an issue because Ukraine. Now, you know, I think again before 2014, I think Ukraine wasn't was split. You know, the Ukrainian population was split about how closely it wanted to be tied to Europe and the EU and whether it did want to be in NATO. But after 2014, when they were invaded and a big chunk of their and a strategic chunk of their territory was bitten off, now they're like, well, fuck, now we want to join NATO for sure. We want some protection. So it's this weird, self-fulfilling, paranoid, you know, prophecy fantasy that Putin has been putting into motion for years now. And how, this is sort of a two-part question, but how do Biden and Putin 
in your best estimation, regard each other? What do they think of each other? And then related to that, how do you think the Biden administration and Secretary of State Antony Blinken have handled the last few months in terms of diplomacy, trying to find a quote unquote off ramp? What is your take on their uh, negotiations and their public posture? I think Putin sees Biden as a known quantity. It's somebody he has dealt with before. Remember, Ukraine was Biden's basically exclusive portfolio uh, after Russia invaded in 2014. And Obama basically said, you know, Joe, you deal with this. Um, so they've dealt with him for since 2014 and even before that when he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They see him as a known quantity, as somebody who knows his stuff, who's surrounded by people that they also know, which after four years of Trump, with its constant personnel changes and the president not knowing, you know, basic things about geopolitics and basic, you know, world geography, they're kind of happy to have people who take this seriously, who know how to negotiate, who know what these treaties are and their components are. Um, I think from Biden's side, it's similar. He knows who this guy is. He's dealt with him for a long time. And he has his number. I think Joe Biden and the people around him, from what I understand, they get it. And that leads me to answer the second part of your question, which is that I think these guys get it. I think they came into office knowing that, you know, unlike previous administrations who all tried some version of a reset and a detente, uh, I think they understood that that was not going to be possible while Putin was alive and in power, which are basically synonymous. And so uh, basically contain Russia, park it, do whatever you can to keep it at bay so that you can do the, you know, pivot to Asia, which is... I think at this point, a hilarious punchline. But, you know, Putin doesn't want to be kept stable. And he wants to be the center of attention. He thinks he is a super he leads a superpower. And he thinks he America should be running around and trying to appease him and paying attention to what he wants. And, you know, reading the tea leaves, he, he loves this. That said, I think this administration has done a pretty good job of threading the needle of taking this seriously and negotiating and drawing this out as long as possible because also the longer they can draw this out a you know maybe war becomes war and the attendant destruction and loss of life becomes less likely but also like if they can get it to the part where the ground starts melting and it's hard for russian tanks and armored personnel carriers to move and not get bogged down you know like the germans and the french did (laughs) uh many years ago I think that's good. But they're also kind of, I think, treating him with the, I think, a proper amount of, I don't want to say disdain, but like, yeah, this guy's, this guy's crazy. And at a certain point, like, there's nothing we can do to appease him. And we won't, I think it's very important that they keep sticking to the line that they will not, you know, their line has been, we won't decide the future of Ukraine without Ukraine and the future of Europe without Europe. And I think that's, that's really good. They should be doing that. You know, I think Russia or Putin wants to, he thinks he's the head of a superpower that is on par with the US. And he wants to sit down with the other big shot, i.e. Joe Biden, and carve up the world the way Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill did at Yalta in 1945. And the fact that Washington won't, or the Biden administration won't play his game, I think is good. 
even if it's infuriating Putin. And and I guess this is the last thing I want to ask you. Like, and again, it's impossible to divine exactly what Putin wants, but even though there's been violence in Russia and, and surrounding states and territories for decades now, um, it's been easy for the rest of the world to kind of look away, even with Georgia, even with Crimea. But does Putin want to literally invade Ukraine and take over Ukraine and restore it as part of Russia? Is that what might be happening here? They want to march to Kiev and literally take over? Because that feels a lot like a like a <laughs> like a that has a big 1940s vibe to it. I know. I know it yeah. might not, but that just feels bigger. Big 1940s energy. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know that I don't. We still don't know what form it will take, but I think I think it's important to look at what the British government did over the weekend when they unmasked an alleged Russian plot to topple the Zelensky, the pro-Western Zelensky government in Kiev and replace it with a friendlier administration in Kiev that will be more pliable uh, from the Kremlin the way that they had been able to do before 2014. Does that mean taking Kiev? I don't know. I mean, I do. does it mean taking over Ukraine and folding it back into the Russian Federation? Unlikely. But I do think they are trying to stop Ukraine's steady drift toward the West and to undermine its independence. I mean, this past summer, Putin wrote a a very, very long (laughs) op-ed about how, you know, he thinks that Ukraine and Russia were always one country for like a thousand years and Ukraine shouldn't be a separate country now as if, you know, the last 30 years haven't happened. So I think as long as maybe he wants it to be like Belarus, where he has, it's a, it's an independent country, but the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, needs, you know, he needed Putin to put down the protests against him. And now he is letting Russia use his territory to build up troops and material on the border on Belarus's border with Ukraine. Maybe that's what he wants from Ukraine. But if he doesn't want it to be whether he wants to fold it into the Russian Federation or not, I I think he just doesn't want it to be really independent and to be able to become a kind of Western satellite on his border. I think it's more that he wants a kind of like a string of buffer states between him and NATO and the West. I also don't know that he would be able to fold all of Ukraine and I don't think he can even fold the Donbass in. So. Um, okay, Julia. Well, I hope you come back next week to explain that in case there is. <laughs> I hope there's no war. In case there is some war. Um, but the drama will continue for sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for explaining that for us though. Seriously. I mean, you really do know this stuff better than most people in Washington. Um, so it is appreciated. Thank you. That's very kind of you. You're welcome. Well, we couldn't get David Remnick on, so, I mean, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Um, All right, cool. Julia, talk next week, hopefully. All right, bye. Coming up, Dylan Byers will be here to discuss the inside dirt at CBS News and whether the network news broadcast still has staying power. Hey, it's Peter Hamby. Along with my colleagues, I want to invite you to check out puck.news for the inside story, what's really going on in our culture. 
It's only $100 a year, which is a steal. Consider buying a subscription for yourself or your smartest coworker today. Check us out at puck.news. Welcome back to the powers that be. Joining us now is Dylan Byers, uh, our, I don't know if I call you a media reporter because you cover tech, but tech is media. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Screens. It's all the same. Yeah. Cover our Engagement. 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 (laughs) Yes. Engagement. (laughs) How do you spend your time? (laughs) Uh, You cover the attention economy, Dylan. I do. Um, Let's get some more buzzwords in here. Yeah, seriously. Uh, (laughs) The metaverse. No, um, you have a piece up this week about Brian Williams, who, you know, the former anchor of NBC Nightly News, who had his uh, scandal about whether he actually saw combat, I think, uh, in in Iraq or Afghanistan. I forget the details. Anyway, yeah, um, became a, you know, resistancy late night anchor for MSNBC and retired. And now it appears that CBS News has made overtures to Brian Williams to take over CBS Evening News from Nora O'Donnell. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so here's what's really funny about this. I reported in September that Brian Williams was not going to go to CBS Evening News. And then I reported it again in November. And the New York Times reported it in November. And everyone who knows Brian Williams knows that the guy who had a, a, a great run up, up until the end as the anchor of one of the leading nightly news shows is not going to want to go to the third place nightly news show in his mid-60s to boot out the only female nightly news anchor <laughs> and try to go about getting that network out of third place with a news organization that has been largely gutted and is now a shadow of what it once was in the Walter Cronkite days. Everyone knows that, except it seems for the relatively new co-head of CBS News, who has for months repeatedly been making overtures to Brian Williams to try and get him to come either do the CBS Evening News or do something else that would effectively make him the face of the network. And so... <laughs> with, with, so Neeraj Kemlani is his name and he, he is, if you haven't heard his name it's because he hasn't worked in television news for a very long time and he's never run a television news uh, uh, news organization and he's been working in digital media for 15 years and I think what this speaks to is a little bit of naivete about what happens if you've got someone like Nora O'Donnell who's, uh, you know, a, a star talent and, and an ego. And you go to another star talent and an ego and you and you proposition that person on taking the job, that this opens up a whole floodgate of gossip and agent posturing to try and, you know, where everyone's trying to play those cards to their advantage. And that is, of course, not a conversation that is going to stay private why would you continue to do that with someone who so obviously doesn't want that job? Because the only effect that that conversation can actually have is to upset Nora O'Donnell and her agents and her friends 
about why you are offering her job or at least her role as the sort of face of the of the news division to someone else when he's not going to take that job. So just to clarify, I don't know the status of Nora's contract, but she doesn't want to leave the evening news. No, my guess is she'll probably stay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and despite all of the despite all of this drama and despite this sort of boneheaded decision on the part of the CBS news leadership, my guess is what will end up happening is she'll actually stay. But but there's this weird thing going on now because he doesn't, you know, for some reason Kimlani can't seem to get it through his head that this is not a good look. Brian Williams seems to understand that this is not a good look. Nora O'Donnell seems to understand this is not a good look. Everyone seems to understand this is not a good look. He does not. But anyway, you know, as I've been work as I was working on this piece, I kept wondering why do we even why do I even care? <laughs> why should anyone care? But I actually the reason I do care is because What's really interesting to me, and you and I talk a lot about television news and about how how the television news business is very much in decline, and uh, what is so interesting to me actually is the question of what the future of CBS News itself is, because here you've got the third place linear network fighting for relevancy in an increasingly irrelevant industry, and... It's also a very, you know, storied brand with a lot of history, and it has some places where it is continues to be successful, like 60 Minutes and Sunday Morning, uh, and even, even its third-place morning news show with Gail King is still a profitable business. And what's so interesting to me is that at some point in, over the course of the next five to ten years, sooner probably rather than later... Sherry Redstone, the owner of Viacom CBS, is going to have to sell this company to somebody because she, the company has like a $20 billion market cap and it's competing with, you know, $220 billion market cap companies. And that is going to open up all sorts of questions about what the future of CBS News is. If she sells it to NBC Universal, NBC Universal can't have two broadcast stations, and so it's going to have to spin off CBS News. And then there's a question is, has it been so depleted that is anyone actually going to want to buy it? Could she theoretically sell it to David Zaslav at a combined Warner Media Discovery, and would he find some way to unite CNN with CBS News and have simultaneously have a cable and a broadcast channel. So there are all these sort of questions that open up so about the fate of this network that are sort of so much bigger than who's going to sit in the evening news chair. But anyway, this is sort of what's sort of fascinating me and eating at my mind this week. Yeah, no, I and I've always been fascinated by CBS generally because like I, I think of them two ways. One, I mean, this is the network of of Bill Paley and and Edward R. Murrow and and Walter Cronkite, as you mentioned. And as a journalist, I've always thought of CBS as the most serious and rigorous, if of time stuffy, of the th- of the big three news networks. I mean, NBC has always been up there, and and the Money Engine was always Today Show. ABC News has always been a little more entertainment focused and ratings focused. I mean, Tim Krause even wrote about this in The Boys of the Bus. Like, it's just kind of always been a little more fluffy. And then, yes. you know, so I respect CBS and watch CBS Evening News. Like, my parents watch it in, in their household. I have so many friends that work there. At the same time, you know, again, partly because of knowing so many people who work there and have worked there, they are seem to be completely allergic to 
modern times <laughs> and innovation. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, other than David Rhodes creating CBSN, I think back in 2014, which to his credit, they got ahead of other uh, news organizations by creating a streaming over the top product. You know, they don't have a very substantial digital footprint. They seem to be very old school. And so, yeah. you know, that is perhaps a reason that they are sort of mired in third place. And I think with the with the morning show, they embrace that. They're like, we are going to have smart conversations and be and program ourselves toward a, an educated elite audience. And as you said, that's made made them profitable. But it just doesn't seem like swapping anchors is going to suddenly close the gap with the other two networks. It seems like a gimmick. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when they brought in Katie Couric back in 2006 and thought that was going to fix things. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know if that place can change. And this seems incredibly sloppy on the part of the new president to sort of be going after, you know, a 60 year old white man to, you know, sub in for Nora. Right. Yeah. And to your point, not only is it sloppy in terms of the issue of talent management, which is really as the head of a television news organization, that's really one of the most important things that you do is manage your talent and make them feel loved and cared for. So it's sloppy in that regard, but it's also just sloppy because to your point, one, it's not going to happen. And and everyone has made that very clear for months. And then two, even if it did happen, as you're saying, it's not a necessarily a foregone conclusion that that would bring back, that, that would bring some surge in ratings. I mean, certainly there would be headlines for, for, for a few days that Brian Williams was coming back. And I know how CBS News would try to pitch it. They would they would talk about it being, you know, a return to the storied days of CBS News and of and of, you know, the the network of Cronkite and all of that stuff. But that wouldn't necessarily happen because fewer and fewer people are watching television, right? And so maybe it's it it's, you know, naively sort of thought of as a way to boost the power and the relevancy of the brand so that it is more appealing now and then more appealing when the, when the time comes for Sherry Redstone to sell it. But yeah, I don't, it just, it seems pretty, it just seems pretty naive to me. When was the last time you watched uh, CBS Evening News? I'd never, I never, I mean, I can't tell you the last, <laughs> I don't watch, like, I, you know, look, so CBS re- relaunched their streaming channel. And now after after years of it being sort of like, a watered down version of what you can get on linear television. They are now adding some of their star talent. And I, as a media reporter, I owe it to them to take a look, but honest, I mean, you know that like no one, we don't, people don't get their news from television anymore. They, so I will say this because I have very close friends who are correspondents for ABC news, CBS news and NBC news. And obviously I work in the political space and, Cable news gets so much attention, especially in the Trump era. Um, Fox is obviously a behemoth. But, you know, these morning shows and the evening news shows, they aren't really in the insider conversation. You know, like the people on Twitter, people who write Politico playbook, like they're not sitting down every night to watch the news at 630. But they do deliver substantially higher ratings than any sort of individual cable news program on 
CNN, the, the broadcast. Yeah, yeah, they do. yeah, yeah. And like so, and so, like you, you know, my friends who are correspondents will, you know, be out on assignment in New Mexico or Illinois or whatever, and get get recognized by flyover country. It's sort of a different viewership than the people on Capitol Hill who are just like sure snorting and then, by the CNN way, up their nose every day. By, by the way, that that's a very important viewership. And and at the end of the day, the only way. Still to this day, the only way to get into 120 million homes is through a broadcast network. So, yeah, it's out there. And yes, you know, we we talk about hundreds of thousands or maybe a million people watching a cable news program. And on the evening news or the nightly news, you know, you'll get six, seven, eight, ten million people might watch that. So yeah, that 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 audience is there and it exists, but its future in the in the world of it, first of all, it's claim on the sort of conversation that you're talking about, like sort of the insider conversation. It, it does not have that. And its future as a business is really, really perilous in light of the decline of the linear model. And as, as more and more people are cutting the cord, it's not clear that the economics of broadcast news are going to work in a, in a streaming world, right? And so... It, it, we are at this weird place, and I, I run into this all the time, where every time I talk about the decline of linear television, I still have to point out that it remains a very lucrative business. And this is what, But this is what every major media company is struggling with. How do you continue to reap the profits of that linear business that is in decline and untether yourself from it so that you can sprint forward into a streaming future and that that's actually the question that you know disney is wrestling with right now should we spin off espn and and abc news so that we can be valued on wall street the way that netflix is valued as a pure streaming play but the problem is if you do that you're giving up you know you're leaving a lot of money on the table so that's that this is the this is the problem but yeah you know there's still there's still an audience for broadcast news and there probably will be for a long long time just in the same way that i still get a print edition of the new york times Oh, wow. I get a print edition of the Los Angeles Times. Yeah. We're cool. Really cool. (laughs) We're the coolest guys in LA. (laughs) So hip. All right, Dylan. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Powers That Beat. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.